0: Yo, what's up theorites? What we have for you today is another swap cast. This week we're swapping shows with Somewhere in the Skies podcast with hosts Ryan Sprague and Chrissy Newton. We've actually met Ryan Sprague at AlienCon, really great dude. They've been pumping out really good UFO alien-themed podcast with great research, great storytelling. People tell us all the time, we don't put out enough episodes. So why not check out Somewhere in the Skies podcast today? Make sure you like and subscribe, follow them. So check them out, listen to this episode, let them know what you think. The podcast is called Somewhere in the Skies. And if you listen close to some of the voice actors in this episode, you might recognize a couple of familiar podcasters. All right, Enjoy.
1: On April 5th, 2002, The Sun, a British news outlet, published an article titled, UFO Encounters Left Witnesses with Radiation Burns, Brain Problems, and Damaged Nerves, claims Pentagon Docs.
2: A 1,500-page Pentagon report of previously classified documents cataloging accounts from witnesses and victims claiming radiation burns, brain damage, even paralysis after close encounters with UAPs.
3: This is the most haunting of all the reports from from my perspective because it shows immunological deficiency. It shows uh, altering human DNA. It shows degradation on a cellular level.
2: Prepared in 2010 by the Pentagon's secret Advanced Aerospace Weapons Program, the report was released only after a Freedom of Information request. It found sufficient incidents, accidents have been accurately reported, and medical data acquired as to support a hypothesis that some advanced systems are already deployed and opaque to full U.S. understandings.
1: And while many debate the veracity of where such reports came from, and their inclusion in official documents within the Pentagon, there have been well-documented cases of such physical effects throughout the decades. One of the most intriguing came from the official Project Blue Book files, wherein a man by the name of William Wallace would claim to have been stricken with paralysis during a UFO encounter. Today, we'll cover this incident in detail and also explore other cases where many looked up into the skies and believe they too were paralyzed by a UFO.
0: This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague.
1: On the evening of March 8, 1967, William Wallace and his wife, Joan, were driving back home to Lowminster, Massachusetts in their 1955 Cadillac after having driven out to the countryside to enjoy the scenic snowfall in the nearby forests. As they were passing by St. Leo's Cemetery, a thick fog appeared, forcing Wallace to slow his car. As he did, according to his report, he witnessed a large bright light to the left of the vehicle. He asked his wife, Joan, if she had seen it, but she hadn't. Wanting to get another look, he turned the car around and approached the cemetery again. This time, both he and his wife saw the strange glow, and Wallace brought the car to a complete stop. He could now clearly see that the light was coming from a bizarre floating object that was shaped like a flattened egg. It was at this point when the car's lights went out. The radio fell silent and the car completely died. Wallace exited the vehicle to get a closer look, pointing toward the object in order to direct his wife's focus to it. However, no sooner had he done so that he realized that he was completely paralyzed and couldn't move. He would recall the following in his official report to Project Blue Book:
2: My mind was not affected at all. You know, it was, it was simply my body that was frozen. You know, my only movement came from some invisible force that seemed to you know. Force my pointed arm back, sending it crashing onto the roof of the car. I, I could hear my wife's panic cries behind me, you know, but I was unable to call back a turn toward her.
1: From Joan's point of view, she would later write in her report of the incident that her focus was on her husband as opposed to the glowing, hovering object.
0: When the car went dead, I was yelling for Bill to get back in, but he did not move from where he was standing I slid across the seat and reached for him, but he wasn't reacting at all. I could hear a strange noise that I assumed was coming from whatever he was looking at. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Very troubling.
1: The paralysis of Wallace lasted for around 30 to 40 seconds in total. At the same time, as he began to sense slight movement in his body, the object was beginning to move away.
2: It moved quickly, but not instantly. As soon as the object had moved away, like the car engine ticked over, the lights came back on, and the radio came back to life. My reactions to everything seemed slow and sluggish. It took me around like 20 minutes to return to feeling normal again.
1: But this did not stop Wallace from jumping into the vehicle and making his way away from the area as quickly as possible arriving back home around 1.30 in the morning. Joan would call her mother almost immediately. According to the information in the Project Blue Book files, her mother asked her to drive her to her house due to how upset she sounded. She and Wallace did just that. Local police were notified, and Blue Book investigators would soon arrive to take the report. Furthermore, the statement of Joan's mother recalled the exact same version of events, as Joan and Wallace had told investigators. In the days that followed, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, conducted further interviews with those involved. More details began to come to light. In the NICAP report, investigators would state the following.
2: The fog on the night in question appeared to have been localized to the cemetery area only, perhaps suggesting that the appearance had something to do with the claimed aerial phenomena, as opposed to atmospheric or other weather conditions. At the same time, or immediately prior to becoming paralyzed, William Wallace had sensed an electric shock feeling hit his body. However, whatever was responsible for Wallace's sudden inability to move remained invisible to the human eye, according to Joan Wallace's account. Additionally, when Joan had reached out from the car, even pulling on her husband's jacket at one stage, despite the contact with him, while he was paralyzed, she didn't feel an electric shock, nor did she experience any paralysis herself. In speaking with local police, they would state publicly that it was their feeling that the Wallace's were being truthful in their report. In fact, it was suggested because of this, William Wallace must have considered the incident important enough to put himself in front of the police voluntarily, inviting skepticism and ridicule for claiming to have been zapped by a UFO.
1: While law enforcement would seemingly verify William Wallace's credibility in reporting the account, the fact that only he and his wife were witnesses, as well as the fact that there was no physical evidence on the car or even on Wallace himself, means that the account is open to such skepticism. In the 2011 issue of the International UFO Reporter, journalist Michael Swords added that there was no lasting effects of the paralysis on Mr. Wallace, no burns or other visible injuries, and no way to confirm that any of this happened. So there was a variety of ways to interpret this event. If it's true... It could be a hint of some kind of technology that induces involuntary movements. This case remained one of over 700 cases that Project Blue Book was not able to explain and would be added to a long list of other cases that involved physical effects on the observer. These cases would stretch across the world and throughout the decades, some even being studied by highly credible UFO investigators, as well as mainstream doctors. A year later, following Wallace's encounter, a bizarre incident would occur in Alaska in December of 1968. A young boy at the age of five, whose name was protected by his family, would recount a harrowing event that occurred when he witnessed strange lights outside his window that came through the window and shone a bright beam in the corner of his bedroom. The incident to the National UFO Reporting Center would state the following according to the young boy at the time.
4: I waked up and there was a big blue light outside my room. I stood up in my bed and walked out the window. It was very big and I had to close my eyes because it was hurting them. Then when I opened my eyes, the light was in my room. I got out of bed and ran towards it. It was a big beam. I went to it and couldn't move. It was scary. I tried yelling for my mommy and daddy, but I couldn't yell. I did look up, though. I looked up, and there was something above me. A machine like a robot. The machine started coming down, and I didn't want it to grab me. I think I was stuck in the light for a long time. And then it went away, and I could move again. I ran to my parents and told them what happened. They didn't believe me. But after it happened, I could hear things very loud. Like when my mom dropped something on the floor. It was so loud i had to cover my ears i don't know what the white and scene were but i just can't forget about it i just can't
1: according to the boy many years later he continued to have vivid dreams of what had occurred that night he even recalled similar experiences of paralysis as time went on and of seeing strange blue lights either coming or going from his bedroom Could this all have been a lifetime of sleep paralysis, or hypnagogic hallucinations, or was it truly something otherworldly? No matter the case, the New Fork report remains unexplained, and so do the answers for the young boy in Alaska. Some of the most intriguing UFO paralysis cases occurred over a decade prior in France, it was September 10th, 1954, in Quarribule. At around 10.30 p.m., Marius De Wild was at home when he heard what sounded like a disturbance outside. When his dog began to bark repeatedly, De Wild looked out the window. The dog was looking upward at the sky, now barking uncontrollably. When DeWilde looked into the sky himself, that's when he saw what the dog was barking at.
2: There was a huge, dark mass hovering over the railway tracks only meters from my home. Even more amazing, though, were two figures wearing strange, tight-fitting one-piece suits, each between three to four feet tall. I opened the front door and I stepped outside, beginning to walk toward the two figures. However, before I could move any further... A bright, laser-like light emerged from the object and hit me. I was instantly frozen in that spot. Although I couldn't move, I was still aware of what was taking place. I watched as these two figures conducted some sort of study of the ground. This went on for several minutes before they entered the craft. After a moment, it ascended and disappeared into the night sky. As soon as it was gone, I was able to move again.
1: The following week, on September 17th, in the city of Senon, again at around 10.30pm, Vest David felt a sudden prickling sensation as he was cycling along a quiet road. He brought the bike to a stop and within moments of doing so, realized he couldn't move. He noticed there was a dark object in the road ahead of him. Even more alarming, a small figure emerged from the object and walked toward him, touching him on the shoulder when it reached him. It then promptly returned to the dark vehicle, which rose into the air and disappeared. As soon as it did, David could move again. At around 4.30 a.m. on the morning of October 11th in the Sacier region, Two men were driving along a road when they each felt a strange sensation, like an electric shock, go through their bodies. At the same time, the car engine died and the headlights went out. Even worse, each of them realized they were completely paralyzed. As they looked on in front of them, they each saw a large object in the middle of the road with three small figures standing in front of it. They remained there for several moments before getting inside the object, which then flew up into the early morning sky and disappeared. As soon as the object vanished, the two men could move once more, and the car came back to life. Returning back to the United States at a little after 11 p.m. on the night of June 15, 1964, in Lynn, Massachusetts, 20-year-old student, William Angelos, was at home watching television when he noticed a sudden pulsing sound that he would liken to a rough-running piston engine. The noise appeared to be coming from right outside the family apartment. Angelos' mother, who had only recently retired to bed for the evening, also heard the sound and came rushing out of her room. By this time, William was approaching the front door of the apartment in order to investigate what the strange noise was. He raced down the stairs to the ground floor of the building and peered out into the courtyard of the complex. He could see a strange red light bathing everything in its glow. When he looked closer, however, he could see that the light was on the underside of a huge disc-shaped craft that was hovering right above the courtyard he would recall how the object was dark and almost colorless. What's more, it was seemingly no more than 20 feet away and only a little over 10 feet above the ground. He noticed how the object had a domed shape to its topside, while underneath it was completely flat. Despite the surreal nature of the situation, the young student stepped outside in order to get a closer look. As he did so, the object began to rise from the ground and slowly moved off into the night sky. However, as he approached the craft, Angelos noticed a numbing sensation spread throughout his body, which eventually caused a temporary paralysis. Only when the object had fully disappeared from sight did the use of his muscles return to him. Interestingly, many other residents of the apartment building would report interference with their television sets and radios at the time of this sighting. Moving to South America in the early hours of August 16, 1968, at around 1.30 a.m. in Mendoza, Argentina, 46-year-old nurse Adela Casalvieri de Panaciti experienced one of the most intriguing and unnerving UFO close encounters on record. An account of which appeared in a Los Andes newspaper. She would state the following of the event.
3: I was tending to patients when I suddenly heard a loud buzzing sound. The next thing I knew, there was this powerful glow that lit up the inside of the building from the yard outside. At around the same time, a feeling of nausea came over me, causing me to open a door to get some fresh air. It was then that I noticed that the noise had stopped. But the glow, that was still there. It was getting brighter and brighter. I ventured outside, both curious and scared. When I finally made it outside, I was immediately frozen in place, paralyzed. There... In front of me was this strange glowing light. It was hovering over the pavement. It emitted both a red color and intermittent blue. At this point, I could feel a burning sensation to my face. I managed to barely lift my arms to cover it with my hands. A moment later, the noise returned. I peeked through to see the strange object rising into the air. As soon as it disappeared, the use of my legs returned, and I ran back inside, calling for other nurses. Before I managed to re-enter the building, however, my legs completely gave out, and I collapsed to the ground.
1: Incidentally, it would later be discovered that Panasiti had suffered burn marks to her face. Even more intriguing, when investigators examined the area, where Panasiti claimed to have witnessed the strange object, they discovered a lead-colored marking on the ground, as well as a particularly strong smell of sulfur. A point of interest here is that although the lead-colored marking disappeared several days later, when the area gets wet, that particular spot dries within seconds, while the area around it remains soaked. A further interest, and perhaps adding to the credibility of this sighting, is that a physicist with the National Atomic Energy Commission did examine the location and discovered a significant increase in radiation. This case remains unexplained. On the evening of October 29th, 1977, at around 6pm, Benedito Campos was relaxing at home with his pregnant wife, Silvia Mara, in the town of Mosquerio, in Brazil. What was a particularly quiet night was suddenly changed by the arrival of a silver disc-shaped object that appeared in the sky, seemingly from out of nowhere. They could each see the object clearly through the living room window. As they continued to watch the strange craft, they each saw a green laser-type beam emerge from the underside of the craft. They continued to watch until suddenly the green beam shot in their direction, pushing through the glass without shattering it. Moments later, the beam hit Mara, and immediately froze her as if in some sort of strange suspended animation. After a few more moments, two strange figures appeared in the room. In their hands, each of them carried a device that they aimed at both of the humans. When they did so, another green laser-like beam shot out of it and struck Mara again. Although he didn't realize it at the time, Benedito was calling out for help, cries that were heard by a neighbor who rushed to the property carrying his shotgun. His arrival panicked these creatures, who quickly vacated the house. The husband and wife were taken to the neighbor's home, where they could gather their thoughts and attempt to come to terms with what had happened. Although Mara was in a state of shock, she was otherwise unharmed and she and her husband returned home a short time later. When they arrived home, the strange object would return again. This time, the ominous light beam would strike Benedito, causing him to be paralyzed for several moments. The object then disappeared in a flash. Incidentally, in the months that followed, the entire Kalaras area would experience a wave of sorts of very similar sightings. On September 10, 1981, in Weston Mill Hill, Plymouth, United Kingdom, 23-year-old Denise Bishop had just got out of a taxi and was walking to the door to her home that she shared with her mother and sister. However, as she walked up the path to the back door of the house, she noticed a strange, bright light coming from behind the property. When she turned her focus to the source of the light, she saw the following.
3: It was a metallic object. It hovered a short distance from the ground. The shape was very odd. The only way I could really describe it was, well, it was in the shape of a crab. I couldn't believe what I was seeing... I wanted to get in the house as quick as I could, but when I went to put my key in the door lock, this green beam of light shot out from the craft and hit my hand. I dropped the keys and couldn't move. Not because I was scared, which I was, but this beam rendered me frozen. This lasted for about 30 seconds before the green light disappeared. I could move again, but this wasn't the weirdest part of the incident. Instead of reacting to what had just happened... For some reason, I simply picked up my keys, unlocked the door, and went inside. As if nothing had happened. I can't quite explain it. It was like like a film that had been paused, and then the play button was pushed, and the film just continued. It was just so bizarre.
1: Denise told her family and boyfriend about what had happened and they encouraged her to report the incident to the police. They arrived and questioned her, but found no evidence of anything and no other witnesses. However, a burn mark was quite visible on her hand, where the laser beam had supposedly hit her. Analysis of the wound, which was considerably painful to her, would suggest it was the result of an intense laser burn. The wound would eventually begin to heal several days after the incident, but Denise certainly didn't heal emotionally.
3: It was by far one of the scariest moments of my life, and the fact that I still have no answers to what happened, it will stay with me forever.
1: According to an account submitted to the National UFO Reporting Center in October of 1999, a bizarre incident occurred in Juneau, Alaska in June of 1982. An anonymous witness at the Juneau Receiving Home was smoking a cigarette on the back porch. As she did so, she witnessed a black sphere hovering around 300 feet away she would state the following.
0: The sphere was so dark. It was like looking at a hole in space. Almost as soon as I noticed it, it started moving in my direction. There was a distinctly audible hum accompanying its movement. The object was soon directly over me when it emitted an intense, fan-shaped orange beam of some kind. The light reached as far as the ground before it began sweeping from side to side as if looking for something. I noticed that any objects that came into contact with the light immediately glowed a bright orange. I could feel a sense of fear taking over, and I ran from the oncoming object. I was just about to make it to the front door of my home when the light from the object actually touched me. That's when my entire body just froze. I was stuck in that spot, but the strangest part of it all was the next thing I knew, I was... Inside my house, sitting on the couch, and I had absolutely no idea how I'd gotten there.
1: By pure chance, though, the witness had been attempting to record shortwave radio broadcasts on a JVC RC M70 boombox. When she went to check on the recorder shortly after waking up, the tape was still recording. She rewound the tape and pressed play.
0: All I heard was static. However, around 20 minutes into the recording, the static was replaced with a very odd warbling noise, modulated and remodulated with all kinds of harmonics. Their sounds were rising and lowering in general pitch with a period of uh, about 20 seconds. The sounds lasted around 15 minutes, about the same time as the duration of my sighting.
1: Unfortunately, the tape became lost several years after the encounter. It isn't merely UFO sightings that have induced temporary paralysis. There are many cases of alien abduction where the abductee has stated they have been unable to move during their respective encounters. And while many skeptics point to the fact that this is a nod towards sleep paralysis, as opposed to paralysis induced by non-human intelligences, the fact that this detail is reported in many UFO sightings might mean we shouldn't dismiss the detail in abduction encounters so readily. Perhaps one of the most intriguing encounters of UFO paralysis occurred on October 27, 1973, near Rio Galacos in Argentina. On the night in question, at a little after midnight, experienced truck driver Dionisio Lanca set out on a long-distance haul. He noticed there was a problem with the right rear tire of the truck, but decided it would last at least part of the journey, and he soon set off. However, around 45 minutes later, he noticed the air pressure was much lower than he had anticipated. At around 1.15 a.m., he pulled the truck over to the side of the road and stepped out in order to attempt to replace the tire. He gathered his necessary tools and walked to the right rear side of the truck. A few moments later, a sudden intense yellow light appeared ahead of him, approximately at a distance of around a mile away. And this is where his extraordinary story truly begins. At first, I
5: thought the light was an approaching vehicle, so I tried to ignore it working on the tire. But the light just kept getting brighter and brighter. I looked up again and I noticed that it went from yellow to blue, then an intense hot white. It it was blinding. I tried to stand up and cover my eyes, but I couldn't. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't stand up. I was
1: paralyzed. The next thing Lanka realized above him was some sort of craft. It looked like two inverted plates attached to one another, creating a saucer shape. It was suspended about 20 feet off the ground. But this wasn't what scared Lanka the most. He could sense that someone or something was behind him. He could see shadows of figures in front of him. But Lanka was stuck there, unable to move. That's when he began to yell out, "'Who's there? Who's behind me? Show yourself!' The shadows grew bigger as whoever it was now moved directly in front of Lanka. He was startled to see three figures, one male and one female, as they turned to face him.
5: They each were dressed in a tight-fitting, single-piece gray overall suit. They wore yellow boots and a pair of long gloves that reached to the middle of their arms. They appeared to be human, but there was something different about them. Their foreheads were slightly larger than normal, and they had these elongated eyes that were almost
1: black. These humanoid beings remained standing there, silently observing Lanka for around five minutes. He tried to communicate with them, but they said nothing. They just studied him. Then they began to communicate to one another but not in any language Lanka could understand. Then, one of the humanoids reached out and grabbed Lanka's shirt collar.
5: I somehow lifted off the ground as if I was floating. I tried to yell out, but nothing happened. Another one of these being stepped forward and inserted some kind of small puncture device in my hand. I could see two puncture wounds slowly appear on my hand, but I couldn't feel anything, and then I blacked out.
1: It was around two hours later when he awoke he found himself between two cars in the back of a field in Bahia Blanca. This was around six miles from where he had stopped to change the tire. He had no memory at all of how he had gotten there. He got to his feet in an attempt to walk for help. However, after taking just a few steps, he collapsed and blacked out. He awoke a short time later and this time managed to make it onto the highway, where a truck driver eventually spotted him. He was taken to a police station, where he was in turn taken to a local hospital. He was discovered to have no significant injuries, aside from a barely unnoticed abrasion on his left eyelid. He was, however, in a severe state of distress, and with an apparent fear of anyone touching him on the head. Lanka would then be transferred to another hospital where he would spend several days. Bizarrely, on the morning of October 30th, he awoke seemingly free of whatever had mentally gripped him. He was informed that his truck had been found where he had pulled it to the side of the road in order to change the tire. Shortly after this, so convinced that something truly strange had happened, he would agree to be administered with sodium pentothal, a chemical mixture that acts as a truth serum. He would also agree to be put under hypnotic regression. The results, indeed, would be fascinating.
5: Uh, I'm going up with these beings into a beam of light. Now I'm in a room with a single window. There's all these strange technological devices around me. There's this radio device that's talking to me in Spanish. It keeps telling me to not be afraid. The next thing I know, I'm between two cars back near the road again.
1: Blanca would wrestle with the memories of that day for many years to come, attempting to make sense of not only the experience itself, but the feeling of helplessness when being paralyzed during the entire affair. I have no
5: idea what truly happened that night. I know two things. Whatever that craft and those beings were, they had complete control over me. There was absolutely nothing I could do to stop them. The second thing, I truly wish I'd just kept driving that night with a bad tire. It definitely would have been a risk I should have taken.
1: With all of these cases of supposed UFO paralyzation, we are left with many questions. What might the reasons be for using such futuristic and highly advanced technology? It doesn't appear to so much cause harm, as in, almost all people who find themselves in such a bizarre circumstance make a full recovery. So here we are, talking about a technology that seems to render all the muscles in the body completely useless. Which also allows the heart and respiratory system to be completely fine. What's more, this appears to wear off almost immediately, as soon as the craft or occupants leave the area. We might also notice how in many of the reports of paralysis and UFO close encounters, witnesses would feel paralysis coming on before their vehicle slowed down if they were driving. Was this a case of the vehicle succumbing to whatever technology-induced paralysis was used against the witness? Or might this have been a purposeful disabling of the respective vehicle for the safety of the paralyzed driver? And what about the paralysis involved in alien abduction encounters? Is this the same technology used in a more proactive way, one used to incapacitate the abductee for ease, as opposed to being used only in a defensive manner when a threat or discovery is sensed? Indeed. Are these two uses of this speculative technology the responsibility of the same alien intelligence or different ones? Could the cause of such paralysis actually be in the individual's own mind? Given that many accounts of close contact state that these apparent aliens have the ability to communicate using telepathy, might they also understand the secrets to other workings of our brains? Might that explain the instant release from paralysis the vast majority of those who have experienced tell of? Or might we also consider, however unlikely, that this technology is some kind of top-secret terrestrial invention, one that is in at least one of not several military's hands? It is certainly not that much of a stretch of the imagination to think that such a technology could indeed have been developed here on Earth. As with every different piece of the UFO jigsaw, the study of this aspect of such close encounters simply throws up more questions that require answers. There is no doubt that cases of temporary paralysis and close contact UFO sightings are more prevalent throughout history than we might first have thought. And while it is a detail that many suggest belongs in the realms of science fiction, it's one that UFO researchers, investigators, and clearly even the United States Department of Defense and Pentagon can't ignore.
2: For the first time in more than 50 years, Congress held a hearing on unidentified flying objects, better known as UFOs. Pentagon officials testified yesterday that reports of mysterious encounters in the sky are increasing, approaching nearly 400. UAPs are unexplained, it's true,
5: but they are real. They need to be investigated.
2: We want to know what's out there as much as you want to know what's out there. I would simply say that there are a number of uh, of events in which we do not have an explanation. Reports of sightings are frequent and continuing.
1: On May 17, 2022, a congressional UFO hearing took place for the first time in almost 50 years, ushering in further involvement of the U.S. government with a UFO topic. The hearing was conducted by the House of Representatives Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and featured two speakers, Ronald Moultrie, the Pentagon's top intelligence official, and Scott Bray, Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence. The goal of the hearing was to update lawmakers on the progress made by a newly formed UFO task force. The task force was set up after the 2021 Pentagon UFO report that documented 144 UFO sightings by military pilots since 2014. Only one of those cases was ever solved, leaving a hefty amount of mystery and concern over what the other 143 cases truly were and what benefit or threat the technology being displayed could represent such technology if that is indeed what causes this temporary paralysis could in theory be used against humanity on a large scale whether by adversarial humans or possible alien visitors either way it would appear that we have no chance to defend ourselves against a technology that we simply don't understand. These were just a handful of accounts of paralysis concerning UFOs and close encounters. Many have most likely gone unreported. And while many of the accounts that we noted today appear to be a defense mechanism to avoid confrontation, like anything else, the same technology can be used for more malevolent purposes, if in the wrong hands, human or otherwise. This episode was researched and co-written by Marcus Loth. More in-depth analysis of some of these cases can be found in his book from deep within the archives of UFO Insight. To learn more, visit UFOInsight.com. Special thanks to our voiceover contributors, Dominique J. Bonaparte, Spencer Gaines, Gary Voorhees, Brent Hand, Connor J. Nolan, Andrew Sanford, jane moore and emily garcia if you haven't already please take just a few moments to rate and review the podcast on apple podcasts or spotify a five-star rating and review truly helps boost our visibility in the largest podcast platforms in the world so please consider heading over to each and leaving a rating and review Thank you in advance. We have some brand new designs in our merch store by some brilliant artists. You can help support and represent the show in style. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, tank tops, mugs, stickers, phone cases, and so much more. Visit teepublic.com. Again, that's Tpublic.com And search for the Somewhere in the Sky store. We're on Twitter at Summer Skies and Instagram at Summer Skies Pod. Check out our Patreon campaign and subscribe to our YouTube channel, both with exclusive and bonus content. Links in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies.
0: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One
2: Podcast Network.